is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. The Biden administration overhauling how it distributes the vaccines. Kind of a use it or lose it approach. Basically, if the demand in certain states drops, then the dose is meant for them. Some of those going to go to the other states. We'll look into whether the new approach will increase vaccination rates, which have been falling off in certain areas. The Pfizer vaccine for kids 12 to 15 could be approved for emergency use next week, but should we really be saving doses for kids instead of sending them elsewhere? One big city next to L.A. already making plans to make sure the kids have easy access to the shots. The pandemic might make telemedicine permanent in California for pets. We start, though, with the new vaccine distribution plan in the U.S. Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine and infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University, formerly worked at the CDC. So, doctor, thanks for coming back. A lot of this concentrating on the rural areas. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Mike. And I like the use it or lose it uh, uh, plan because vaccine in a refrigerator never prevented any disease. You've got to get it into arms. And if there are parts of the country that can use it, let's use it. And if uh, you've given it up, you can get some more next week if uh, the, the, the interest spikes up in your area. And uh, they're also looking to mobile clinics, neighborhood pharmacies, doctor's offices. They're going into the homes of shut-ins. So we're really bringing the vaccine to the people rather than asking the people to make it to a vaccination center. Ah, but here comes the problem, as you know. Uh, You can bring the vaccine to the people, but you don't necessarily bring the people to the vaccine because Mm -hmm. there, there are too many people out there who have all sorts of reasons they think are good ones, probably not, to not get vaccinated. So how do you deal with that issue, even if, you know, the Biden administration succeeds in putting the vaccines out where they're needed, if a lot of people go, nah, we're not going to get it, we're afraid of it, or we don't think it's necessary? Uh, uh, Charles, you've got it there. There are two problems. The first is access. We were talking about that before. Make sure the vaccine is where it where it needs to be used. And then there's hesitancy or reluctance, we might call it. Uh, If people won't come and accept the vaccine, we've got to try to keep reaching out to them and persuading them. And I think local political leaders can have a role, religious leaders, the local chamber of commerce. If they all sing with one voice, if they all harmonize on these messages about how important it is not only for individuals, but whole communities to be vaccinated, then I think there are still a lot of hesitant people who can be brought into the fold, as it were. Part of the plan and his new goal is 70 percent of U.S. adults with at least one dose by the 4th of July. 70 percent. Is that is that pretty high? to you, given the reluctance we've seen, or is it just what we need to get to somehow, some way? Well, you know, Mike, he set other goals and then exceeded them. This one is going to be a real stretch because of what Charles said. There's so much hesitancy now. We've harvested, if you will, the low-hanging fruit, and now we're going up higher in the tree, and for each increment, we're going to have to work harder and be more persuasive. It's wonderful to have a goal out there. 
I hope we can all work toward it. You know, I, I, I wonder, I, I'm a firm believer in the power of, of greed. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> so, so much money has been spent, uh, and, and rightly so, I think, uh, to, to try to mitigate some of the horrible effects of the pandemic. I wonder if as an inducement, if they promised people, you know, some places give them like a lollipop if they get the vaccine. Well, who wants a lollipop? If they gave somebody a thousand bucks and said, you get vaccinated, we give you a thousand dollars. I just wonder if that wouldn't dramatically increase the number of people getting vaccinated. Well, it certainly would. There's no doubt about it. And a lot of people would raise their hands and say, wait a minute, I got vaccinated last week. How about rewarding <laughs> another, me? Another round. You know, that would happen immediately. <laughs> but nonetheless, there are incentives. Employers can surely give people time off so that they can get vaccinated. Uh, Krispy Kreme is out there. It's not a lollipop, but it is a donut trying to uh, help help uh, provide an incentive albeit small, but sweet, uh, to uh, get vaccinated. Uh, anything we can do to encourage people to do this as beyond their sense of self-interest and their interest in making their community safer. Uh, an immediate reward always helps. I, I like the maple donut in particular, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so. Small and sweet. Yeah, yeah. Dr. William Schaffner, <laughs> professor of preventative medicine, infectious diseases at uh, Vanderbilt. Many parts of the world struggling to distribute and administer COVID vaccines. Now, that's not the case here in the U.S. We have we have plenty of doses, and it's really not that hard to find a place to get a shot. Kids 12 to 15 set to get the shots too soon, even though they're at low risk of severe illness. So instead of focusing on kids here, would it be better to send the vaccines to places that are really struggling? India, Brazil. With us is Dr. Harold Schmidt, bioethicist at the University of Pennsylvania Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy. So, Dr., how do we solve this one? That, that absolutely is a problem. So first of all, there is a really unbearable inequity in vaccine access globally. You absolutely put your finger on the right point there, for better or worse. And unfortunately, many of the things that went wrong here were decided about a year ago. And at this point, it's a bit like changing course on an oil tanker. You know, you can't do rapid turns like you would do with a dinghy. So that said, I think we still can course correct. And we're seeing promising initiatives by the Biden administration at this point. But then the other thing I want to flag is not all kids are the same in terms of getting or spreading COVID, right? So equity issues arise here too, in the sense that more disadvantaged teenagers are more at risk than better off ones. And also more disadvantaged kids are more likely to live in more crowded and multi-generational households, for example, and can spread COVID to others. So protecting them can protect others too. And it simply is a fact that we will be vaccinating kids from here on. So the key is to uh, ensure equitable rollout here uh, to simply lessen the force of that dilemma. Well, it's kind of like where the focus has been lately now that some of the demand has dropped off, right? You got to get out into communities. You got to take vaccine to people. So almost it's like get it right with the kids here and then also or in short order, then we can start shipping other places. But we got to make sure that we're still on the right path to begin with. Well, so I think, you know, stepping back, there certainly were major issues in the way we decided which vaccine, which countries would have vaccines. So that that is an issue that we have to address for the next pandemic, and there will be one. But at this point, you're absolutely right. That, that is what we want to focus on. And we have these two battles, right? We have some areas where we have more vaccine than we can um, place. And in other areas, we still have difficulties getting vaccinated. And there's a big discussion now about vaccine hesitancy. The president addresses today. And I think we want to be clear that in many ways, 
there are communities that have great and keen interest to get vaccinated, but they still don't have the ability. So the focus really has to be on getting vaccines to those most in need. And uh, a number of states, including California with the Healthy Places Index, use disadvantaged indices that are really effective for doing that. And that just needs to be universalized. There are, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, there are two ways of increasing this availability of vaccines to the world. One, of course, would be to have the existing companies, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, pump out more vaccine. But the other way would be to loosen patent protections, right, <clears throat> and allow, excuse me, and allow... Mm-hmm. Uh, pharmaceutical companies in other parts of the world to, in effect, copy the technology of these vaccines and produce them themselves. But there's an enormous resistance on this from the pharmaceutical industry. There is, absolutely. And, you know, we've had these battles many times over. For example, if you think back to HIV medication in the early days, there were similar discussions where the pharmaceutical industry said, no way can we do that. And ultimately, there were all sorts of humanitarian licensing arrangements that were accomplished. So I think there is still a lot of wiggle room for making this happen. And that has to be part of it. But just want to flag the other point again, because you rightly set this up as a dilemma that we have, right? We still have to be mindful of the, the fact that the dilemma is the largest. The more we have better off people being vaccinated here and worse off people around the world not being vaccinated. So we can really attenuate the severity of this dilemma by making sure that at least in as much as we are striving for 70% of residents being vaccinated by July 4th, as the president announced today, that we make sure the worse off, the most disadvantaged groups aren't falling by the wayside and are a priority. Because it is a fact that we still have better off people being vaccinated at higher rates than worse off people. Could we divert things that are shortly to be coming online? I mean, we used to hear a lot about, oh, Novavax is working on theirs, and then that kind of went away. But I assume they're still working. So if they get one, that's something we could send off, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole other question about which vaccines we're sharing and which ones are effective here. There's other issues in terms of the supply chains. If we have vaccines that require cold storage, that oftentimes is not available in other settings, right? So those are a lot of logistics we want to think about. But the main thing really is this moral imperative to realize that this is a a really uh, appalling inequity that we have in the current situation. And Thankfully, the Biden administration is taking steps in the right direction in in addressing this. Dr. Harold Schmitz, bioethicist, University of Pennsylvania Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy. Long Beach is L.A.'s neighbor. It's the second biggest city in the county and has its own health department. Now, that health department and city officials are making plans on how to best distribute vaccines to 12 and 15-year-olds. Let's find out how it's going to work. Kelly Colopy, director of the Health and Human Services Department for Long Beach. So, Kelly, kids, not the same as adults. you got to have a parent with you. It's not as easy. So how do you see this working? Uh, we are ready to, to go as soon as it is approved. So we have our ongoing site at the convention center. And as long as a, a, you know, a youth shows up with his parents, his or her parents, uh, we are uh, ready to vaccinate both by appointment or uh, as a walk-up. But we're also um, moving into some of the school locations. So we'll be opening vaccine clinics um, just right off the parks. It'll be available to students, uh, their parents, as well as community members. 
um, around the city of Long Beach so that as kids are leaving school or being taken to school, uh, they'll be able to be vaccinated with their parents at that time. You know, Kelly, we've talked about this before on the show, uh, because you guys in in Long Beach, you you constantly... (laughs) They're already ready. Yeah, you you seem to always be ready and and doing it the right way. And it it almost doesn't seem right that you keep doing it right. We're supposed to say things like, oh, well, you need to work on this, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so why why is that? I, I mean, and, and I'm, I'm serious now. Uh, why is it that you always seem to be as a city with this anyway? I don't know. Maybe maybe you screw up on everything else, but you seem to be pretty good on this. <laughs> why, why why is it that you're always prepared and you always do seem to have a plan in order? When so many other communities, you talk to them and you say, "Well, what are you going to do for kids?" and you get an answer like, "Oh, we don't know yet." Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think especially for for the children, the systems are in place, right? So we have already um, been partnering with the school district for uh, since COVID started. The school district has allowed us to do testing on site, drive through all kinds of things. Um, so those partnerships exist. Um, we've you know we've had a long history with our school district to be able to do that. So they're actually you know they're excited to be able to. Uh, get out the word and, and support their the parents and the students on site. And then, you know, we have Pfizer is the only vaccine we'll be able to use right now for youth. And and the Pfizer in the past has been a little more different to, uh, difficult to use um, just because it required some additional uh, freezers and other things. And so, but we have those in place and we have them in place to be able to get out into community too. So we do pop-ups in neighborhoods all over Long Beach. We have now four mobile vans uh, who are doing vaccines. And so we'll be doing that as well. And as long as the, you know, the, the um, youth shows up with their parents, uh, we're ready to vaccinate them uh, as soon as it's approved. Do you feel like the clock's ticking in multiple ways? Number one, we want to get shots into arms as fast as we can, kids included, herd yeah. immunity, all that. But also for them, it's like if they want to go to university in the fall, they're probably going to need a shot or even camp this summer. Like they've got a few weeks to get this in their arms and then wait a month and do it again because they got places to go. They do. And I think what we're saying, our, you know, our concern is that a higher percentage of our cases that are coming in. So while case rates are down, the, the, where we're seeing our largest growth is 18 and under. And so almost 21% now of our new cases are coming from, from our youth under you know, 17 and under. And, um, and so that used to be where they were only maybe you know, 12 to 13%. And it's a national number too. And so we're real concerned that because we've been able to vaccinate everybody who's older and we're starting to build, you know, immunity there, uh, these, ch- these children haven't had an opportunity yet. And so for them, uh, they, you know, while they may not often get as sick as adults do, they can get serious illness. Um, it also, when you're, if, you know, if you're not vaccinated and you're exposed, it's two weeks out of school, it's time away from your friends, it's time away from the activities that you love. And so it really, I, I think the youth really want to be able to get it so that they can continue to participate in all the things that they want to do, um, as well as really supporting um, their friends and their families to make sure that they don't contract the virus and, and bring it to others who haven't yet been able to be vaccinated. So what do you think of our idea that everybody just moved to Long Beach? <laughs> Might get a little crowded, um, but <laughs> we, are, I mean, we, are certainly, <laughs> we are certainly supporting uh, more regionally. So we, you know, we are vaccinating people who live and work in Long Beach, but also some of our surrounding jurisdictions as well and are happy to support uh, folks as needed. How are you guys addressing the big hesitancy question? 
Yeah, you know, we're doing a lot of uh, focused outreach in communities where we hear that there is the most uh, vaccine hesitancy. So we do have people who are, you know, they're setting up in parking lots and knocking on people's doors and others to really begin to work with those who have the greatest the greatest concern. Uh, we're getting ready to do uh, more focused um, uh, outreach, and but also a media campaign and others to just really, you know, we want people to understand that this is safe. And, and the more that we have people vaccinated, the the quicker uh, we could be opening up or moving quickly. Our case rates in Southern California and LA County are the lowest in the country, which is just so amazing uh, that we've been able to achieve this. But we, we want people to understand that it's only um, because of the vaccine um, and other things that this has been allowed for us. And we want to make sure that they are safe as well. Okay. So when the go-ahead comes, what? If you're at school there for them or they can bring, they being mom or dad, bring the kid and you're pretty much good to go. Absolutely. You can make an appointment or you can just walk up. We have sites for all of it. All right. Kelly Colopy directs the Health and Human Services Department for the city of Long Beach. Coming up after this short break, the pandemic could make visits to the vet much easier for your dog and cat. A lawsuit's been filed in California by veterinarians and the San Francisco SBCA to make telemedicine appointments for pets continue after the pandemic ends. Yeah, just, you know, hold the cat up or the dog in front of the laptop and there's your appointment. Brandy Kensel, Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Public Policy, General Counsel for the San Francisco SPCA. So, Brandy, explain this one to us. We're in this environment now, for better or for worse, where a lot of us, you know, for us, the pandemic has created this unique time for all of us to kind of shift our conversations and our community expectations and a lot of things. And telehealth for humans is one of those, but telehealth for pets is another one in a space that obviously the San Francisco SPCA is very um, interested in having operated two veterinary hospitals ourselves. And, you know, the truth of the matter is while there has been some relaxation during the pandemic with respect to the telemedicine um, laws in California, um, telemedicine for pets in California is completely impracticable. Um, and that's what we're hoping to change with our lawsuit. Well, let's talk about the maybe the other surprise, which is people who think that it's a strange idea to begin with, because don't you have to poke and prod the cat or the dog to figure out what's going on? I mean, what what can you handle with telehealth? Because because the cat and the dog don't talk. Right, right. You know, and this is something that we hear um, as kind of a counter to, you know, wanting to advocate for telemedicine. And first, I just usually say is, look, you know, this this lawsuit isn't mandating that veterinarians or even clients participate in telehealth. Um, veterinarians, we believe, are, you know, trained <laughs> professionals and they're able to differentiate between patients who they need to see in person and patients they can assist through telemedicine. You know, a behavior consultation, for example, for that unruly puppy in your home, you know, probably a veterinarian is better able to assist you in a behavior consultation in the natural environment of that puppy. Um, a broken bone, you know, you're going to have to bring that, that, that dog or cat in. So it's really up to the veterinarian's discretion. And, you know, in terms of, you know, not being able to communicate. Of course, you know, some of us think that we can't communicate with our pets. I won't go to crazy town on that, but um, (laughs) (laughs) um, no, but, you know, in all seriousness, um, you know, we use telehealth uh, very successfully in the human healthcare context for for infants, for babies, and for nonverbal individuals. And so the notion that, you know, doctors are untrained to other, you know, utilize the other tools available to them. And again, not make the determination in their sound medical judgment, whether or not the animal should come into the clinic. Um, we just don't think it really holds up. With people, uh, you know, one of the uh, 
limitations for telemedicine had been insurance, right? Health insurance, because some policies wouldn't pay for it uh, until the pandemic came. Is insurance, because some people, have, of course, do have pet insurance, right? Is insurance an issue as well? Not to our knowledge, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, d- despite kind of efforts to expand it, uh, pet insurance is actually very underutilized in um, among pet owners. So it's not really a major factor that we see at play, um, not in the same way as in human health care anyway. Brandy Kinsel, Senior Vice President, Advocacy and Public Policy, General Counsel for the San Francisco SPCA. They've got that uh, suit to change the rules and allow the telehealth for the animals. The COVID vaccine business can be quite profitable. Pfizer says it expects global sales of its coronavirus vaccine to reach $26 billion this year. Now, it's a milestone that would make it the biggest selling pharmaceutical product in the world. Pfizer, which was in partnership with Germany's BioNTech for vaccine development and sales, has said it expects to manufacture two and a half billion doses of the two-shot vaccine this year. The company is working on creating seasonal flu shots using the same messenger RNA technology. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.